Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 211 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're a quarterly podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's November 8th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lodick. It, it keeps getting worse. <laughs> I guess I lost out on the over-under during our last episode. I think I missed it by about two to three weeks. Ouch. At least. At least. Um, yeah, so we're, uh, friends, we're sorry we've sort of defaulted into being a monthly podcast. It's not a conscious choice on our part. It's just, uh, you know, it's stuff. It's all happening and we're we're swamped. But we missed you. We're back. There's a lot to talk about. Steve, uh, how are you doing? Oh, you know, the usual. Did, did you see the, the, this new university that they're going to have in Austin, the University of Austin? <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, who, I, I'm afraid to ask. Who's the they there? Who's who's they um, that's launching a new university? Oh, you know uh, Barry Weiss. Uh, what's his name? Lonsdale. You know all of those, all of those forward thinkers who just you know bring rigor and intellectual discipline into their day jobs. I I know but I didn't he- I know I didn't hear it right, but it sounded like you said Barry White, and I thought that would be amazing. <laughs> now that university I would go to. <laughs> Wait, so is it, is it, so it's some sort of, uh, can't can't get enough of your woke, babe. Can't get enough of your woke, baby. Um, so is it supposed to actually be here in Austin? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's current headquarters is a random office on like, uh, was it like, was it No, was it like San Marcos? I, I, the address is like, I don't even know what it's like some office around the Capitol. Um, it sounds like, okay, I, I just, I'd not heard about this. I'm doing a quick search. They, they want to be known or are known as UATX. This, I guess it's like, you know, obviously UT Austin can't complain on trademark branding grounds, but Hey, yeah, the logo, the, the, the lettering looks pretty similar. Is it? Well, all right. That's for like, our like, IP like, this is, this, like, I, I just, I, I, I can't even, I, I just can't. I mean, for a school, for a state that's trying to like kick you know, critical race theory out of the, out of the classroom. Like we need, we need a university because we need more diversity of ideas. Okay. Uh, well, I, I might be interested in the idea that we need more diversity of ideas in universities. However, what do we know about, like, so I, I don't know the names you were talking about there. Is this, is it an ideological project? It sounds like you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, is it, I, I'm guessing here, is it sort of uh is this sort of a, the universities are lost and therefore we need to, create a competing ideological center of gravity. Is that the sort of flavor of it? Yes. How did I not hear about it? Has this been out like for a while? Am I just? No, I think it was this morning. Oh, okay. Um, well, look, um, my general view, I, I don't know the details of who the, who's going to be teaching there, what kind of degrees they're going to be doing, but more uh, opportunities to try different things is not inherently bad. I'd, I'd want to know, is, is there anything big red flagish about what they're saying they're going to be all about. Cause I can't say I have a problem with it. If it's just, even though I, I'm a little unsettled by the branding blurring, but uh, I, mean, I mean, at the, at the moment it seems like it's a grift Bobby. So I don't ah. know that it's much, I mean, is this sort of uh, like a pay, pay $20,000 for our online degree, that sort of thing. Something like that. All right. Well, I mean, uh, here's an, here's their Q and a, um, do you offer degrees? We do not confer degrees at the moment. So what do you offer? We will offer a summer program for college students called Forbidden Courses that invites top students from other universities to join us for a spirited discussion about the most provocative questions that often lead to censorship. Well, I can imagine a version of that that actually could be a very compelling experience. I, I don't know who's yeah, going to teach not, that or what the, the content it's not, it's not the one you think it is. All right. Well, I, um, I may be less alarmed uh, perhaps than I should be, but it, I'm not as alarmed as I thought I was going to be when we started going down this conversational path. Um, but I'm prepared should, to become you, alarmed I mean, later. You should, you should still be alarmed. I don't know. I don't know. Well, um, what else is happening besides, besides crime, boy, I, cri- crime, boy, I don't know. What, el- what else we got? Um, that, we've got that, a that, load a deep, of that, national. That, 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 that was a deep West wind cut, by the way. Oh, okay. Us. I totally missed that. What what episode is that yeah, from? Did. What happens on that? 
Uh, that episode is from, is it Pasta Comitatus? I think it's from Pasta Comitatus, I think, if I have to go back. Oh, off the top of my head, I might be off by an episode, but it's it's late season, what, two? Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Well, you know, it's you indeed. highlight the fact that we just don't get as many good pop culture, national security law. Maybe I'm just oblivious to it. Maybe listeners could weigh in on on Twitter about the best Re- relatively recent uh, movies, TV shows, et cetera, that have great national security law. They really tee up in a serious way some of the national sec- security law topics de jour. Do you have any come to mind, Steve? Uh, I mean, are there good network shows? I mean, like, I've been watching Dope Sick, which is, you know, very much, I mean, it's, there's a lot of law. There's not very much national security. I mean, you know, not a lot of national security law in the prescription drug abuse universe yeah yeah um i've not been watching really anything although we did finally i think based on your recommendation i gave uh ted lasso season two a second chance and now i'm now i'm rehooked. i'm not done with it yet but uh, yeah i'm back i'm back in i was completely <laughs> completely taken by the the roy kent focused uh rom-com uh yeah. episode yeah. that was yeah. pretty genius that was pretty great um but you gotta believe bobby you do have to believe. I do believe, as you know. Um, so let's let's talk about of the million things that have happened since last month. We have, we've got a somewhat idiosyncratic roundup of things uh, over in Guantanamo. We've got a couple of interesting things. First of all, Harun Gul winning a habeas petition. That's yep. old school. So we're gonna we're gonna examine what <laughs> is and is not signified by that. Uh, and then there's the Majid Khan uh, set of events. Uh, you know where that case is, but it's it's his testimony, and then this sort of uh, very surprising follow-on event involving the the panel, the the military commission equivalent of the jury, uh, weighing in ex cathedra with some thoughts that we will uh, we will have a look at, and then so that's Guantanamo. Then we'll pivot up to the Supreme Court. Um, Cert was denied in ACLU, ACLU versus NSA. I don't know if we'll say much about that, but today was oral argument in Fagaza. Uh, did you did you get a chance to listen to it? Uh, I read the transcript. Okay, cool. I listened to part of it, so we'll we'll make our headway through that, and maybe some other Supreme Court items. Do you have anything? Uh, it was else? long. They, that, that argument went like over two hours. Hmm. Um, you know the for the the for the four people paying attention to my quixotic quest to rid the military of jurisdiction over retired service members. The government's brief in opposition to cert in Bagani is due tomorrow. Ah, all right. A big day. So you can be busy tomorrow then. Um, and we have some National Security Division roundup activity. Why, there was a big deal announcement today relating to ransomware just very shortly before we started up here. We've got we've got a an actual, basically a, a Chinese case officer from the Ministry of State Security who's not just in U.S. custody, but now he's been convicted. It looks like he's heading to the Bureau of Prisons for a prison sentence. That's we'll talk about what the what the charge was and sort of the really interesting sort of big picture issues lurking in the background there. Um, maybe a few other cyber items. I, I think, Steve. Anything else beyond those? That's quite a lot. Yeah, let's jump right in. Um, let's talk about Harun Gul winning his habeas petition now. Uh, for longtime followers of Guantanamo and military detention as a topic, it it feels like such a throwback Thursday uh, event back in uh, the, sort of the middle of October when uh, Judge Mehta of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia granted a habeas petition. And it it's interesting. Actually, Steve, maybe you know, I don't know the full details of exactly why that particular merits petition had been protracted the way that it was. I don't know the ins and outs of that. Um, most of the most of the detainees who've had merits petitions have long since had the result. I mean, this is it's been years since I thought about an unresolved initial merits petition. I don't think there are any. I could be wrong, but I don't think any of the lingering group of detainees there still have an unresolved initial merits petition. Do you do you know if that's right? I think there might still be one, but there's also, of course, the pending appeals in um, Alhila and Paracha, which are appeals of the original habeas petitions in both cases. So, right. so um, that's for sure. Yeah, that, so those are that still, I those realize. Are still kicking around. 
So let me let me paint a picture quickly of who we're talking about. Asadullah Harun Gul, uh, who sometimes in in these contexts was described in the military as Harun al Afghani, is an Afghan citizen. He's captured by Afghan government forces along with some other guys in early 2007. Uh, the claim, in, in as far as I, the, the claim is that these guys were all members of Hezb Islami Gulbuddin. This is Gulbuddin Hekmatyar's uh, organization. So certainly uh, associated with and, and affiliated in some ways with the Afghan Taliban, but not the Afghan Taliban. This is Hekmatyar's own group. Hekmatyar was basically a uh, Islamist, uh, ideologically and theologically simpatico sort of guy who'd been a, a warlord who'd one time been the prime minister of Afghanistan. Um, his group, which is uh, abbreviated uh, HIG or HIG, um, very much, I would say, the, the initial inspiration for the idea that we needed to talk in terms of associated forces engaged in hostilities against the United States in connection with uh, the larger conflict in Afghanistan in particular. That is to say, they're not some uh, franchise of Al-Qaeda. They're not a, uh, a spinoff they're from. They're their own independent group, but they were absolutely in the field engaging in combat operations against U.S. forces and Afghan government forces in the uh, sort of 2002 onward period. Um, and Hig to me, always was the very paradigm of what you're talking about when you say that when the U.S. military is otherwise authorized to be engaged in a theater of operations, whether you read it into the relevant AUMF or you say it's an Article II implied authority, at a certain point, there needs to be an understanding that when some other organized armed group joins in that fight and is in a very literal way engaging in armed conflict and combat operations, you need a label for how you think about them. And associated force is one way to capture that idea. I guess what I'm saying is their involvement being brought in either under the AUMF or Article 2 or both, to me, was never a very controversial policy move and doesn't present the tricky questions when you use the associated force concept to reach out to groups that are maybe uh, fighting against or spun off from and fighting against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. These guys were very much side by side. But here's the thing. Um, the, the basis for detaining him was his association with his membership in HIG. Uh, and there's been a, there was a peace deal with the HIG uh, going back to, I guess, 20, um, I forget exactly when it happened, 2018, I think. So, so the basis for detaining any HIG members has been uh, has perished from that point onward, and it was just a question of how long would you have to unwind that. The government tried to respond to that by exploring the possibility, I think, of detaining him on grounds that, well, it wasn't just HIG membership. Maybe there was a basis for tying him, at least him, to Al-Qaeda itself. And that's the thing. And I don't think they've released the unclassified version of the opinion, but the reporting that went on about the ruling based on what went on at the oral argument in the, the public portions of the record suggests the government probably just couldn't make its case to link him instead to Al-Qaeda. Now, none of this actually requires the court to get to the question of whether anybody associated with the Taliban, let alone the HIG, is detainable now that we're out in Afghanistan. Um, or the even bigger question of what about the basis for claiming there's still an armed conflict against Al-Qaeda? Maybe those things are in Judge Mehta's opinion. I'm, I'm a little doubtful. I think it's probably going to be an assessment of what the government's evidence was that tried to tie him to Al-Qaeda as such, and a decision that the government just didn't meet its burden of proof by the preponderance of the evidence. Um, and if that's the case, it's potentially not that big. It's important, obviously, to him. But it's not that big for the law of detention writ large. Uh, but we'll see. There's uh, possibly also going to be some hard questions about the role of the court in supervising the process of deciding, uh, you know, when and how the guy can actually be transferred back to Afghanistan. But I, I don't expect any fireworks. Steve, you got anything to correct as to that accounting or to add to it? You, you, you think there's any chance the government appeals? No, I don't think so. Unless, well, I guess it depends, right? Yeah, I think if Judge Mehta actually, if it turns out uh, Judge Mehta reached all these much bigger issues that are not necessary yeah. to decide his case necessarily. Like, let's say, for example, the government did meet its burden of proof. 
showing that uh, Ghul was a member, a functional member of Al Qaeda. And then the judge said, ah, but the war is over, the armed conflict is over. And so all the detention authorities expired. I feel like that, if that were the ruling, that would have leaked by now. We'd be hearing about it. There'd be some whispering at least. I, so I suspect that's not the case. If it's just an evidentiary complaint, uh, I don't think they appeal. Sure would be nice to know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe one day we'll find out. Maybe, um, maybe one day we'll get to see this very important uh, district court decision. But well, Speaking of things we do, did eventually get to see, do you want to take us through what happened with Majid Khan? Um, sure. I mean, I don't think we have... I, I, we we don't have time to do it justice. Yeah. Um, we can kind of hit the high points or low points. So, so Majid Khan um, is a Guantanamo detainee, um, right? He was basically there's been this whole thing about sort of um, he pleaded guilty um, to offenses before a military commission. He's continued to cooperate um, with government investigators, um, and he finally appeared before a military commission quote, jury, unquote, really a panel um, on October 28th, where, among other things, um, he spoke at some length um, in a transcript that I think we now have um, about his torture um, and about how he was abused, about what the effects of the abuse have been for him, about how they continue to, you know, affect his daily existence, and his daily life. Um it's a remarkable testimony. It's a narrative I think folks really ought to read for themselves. Um, but I, I actually think it was even, if anything, overtaken by the remarkable letter that seven of the eight members of the military jury, you know, who imposed sentence, which is really a formality given the plea agreement, um, sent to the convening authority, um, imploring the convening authority to grant clemency. To Khan, um, and the the letters. It's a handwritten letter. Um, it's two pages. Carol Rosenberg has posted it. It's on the New York Times website. Um, and I, Bobby, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm just going to read it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to. They offered three grounds. Um, yeah. So first, Mr. Khan has been held without the basic due process under the U.S. Constitution. He was held without charge or legal representation for nine years and held without final sentencing until October 2021. Although designated an alien and privileged enemy belligerent and not technically afforded the rights of U.S. citizens, the complete disregard for the foundational concepts upon which the Constitution was founded is an affront to American values and the concept of justice. Two, Mr. Khan was subjected to physical and psychological abuse well beyond approved enhanced interrogation techniques, instead being closer to torture performed by the most abusive regimes in modern history. This abuse was of no practical value in terms of intelligence or any other tangible benefit to U.S. interests. Instead, it is a stain on the moral fiber of America. The treatment of Mr. Khan in the hands of the U.S. personnel should be a source of shame for the U.S. government. Three, Mr. Khan committed his crimes as a young man reeling from the loss of his mother, a vulnerable target for extremist recruiting. He felt to influence his furthering Islamic radical philosophies, just as many others have in recent years. Now at the age of 41 with a daughter he has never seen, he's remorseful and not a threat for future extremism. It's the view of the panel members below that clemency be granted based on the points above, as well as Mr. Khan's continued cooperation with the U.S. efforts and other more critical prosecutions. Um, that's a remarkable document. And it is, uh, it is uh, powerful to see the panel members trying, uh, weighing in in this way. This is, this is not a normal thing to see, and it's fascinating no. especially to see it taking place in the military context. Um, I want to pick at one of those three things. So in, in sort of order of surprisingness, like the last bit about the, uh, the circumstances that that's very much the sort of thing one might expect to see in a, in a clemency letter, of course, nothing too shocking there. Um, and given his testimony, the second part about, uh, quote, the, the physical and psychological abuse, uh, again, given what was just testified to, that that doesn't seem too surprising to me. The surprising part was that first part, where they they piled in or built on top of that foundation the separate complaint, accusing the government of holding him uh, in in an affront to, in a violation of the Constitution and affront to American values and concept of justice. I I guess I'm curious what they would say. I guess these one two three four five six. 
was it seven panel members? These seven no, no, panel, do they do they deny that the U.S. military had the right to use detention without criminal charge? Period, or do they have in mind a theory that uh, it be it was one thing as to some of our detainees, the many the many large number of detainees associated with the uh, asserted armed conflict with Al Qaeda? Like, do they object to all of it? Like, none of the detention was permissible. Or are they saying that Khan's particular circumstances put him sort of uh, outside the zone of where detention authority? I, I just I wonder what exactly they have in mind here, because that part really stood out to me as more shocking and surprising to see that asserted here in this context. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know because it's a short letter and it's not a legal brief. And, you know, I I don't imagine any of the panel members were lawyers. Um, I, I will just say that I think I'm less interested, Bobby, in the legal analysis than I am in what this tells us about the military commission process. I mean, you might recall that a similar thing happened at Hamdan's sentencing um, 147 years ago when we were when we were younger. <laughs> we were young um, guys then. Uh, by the way, I went on a faculty recruiting dinner last night, Bobby, and for the first time in my career, I was the senior member of the faculty at the dinner. No kidding! Wow, that was really weird. <laughs> that, that was that was a, that was an awkward moment for me. I was like, "Wow, I'm I'm the old guy now." Um, oh my god! Anyway, so, I'm sorry I wasn't there with you to alleviate that burden from you. <laughs> I was going to say that you'd be the senior guy. Um, oh my the, god! But so the the um, in Hamdan sentencing, as you might recall. Right. The, the panel members asked the court one question, which was, can we give Hamdan credit for time served? And once the court said yes, the panel imposed a sentence that was basically six months beyond the time served. Right. Like yeah. they really. Um, and of course, the, that, 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 that rule then got changed so that time served could no longer be counted. But like we've now seen two fairly significant, I wouldn't say rebellions, but assertions of independence by military commission panels that frankly would give me some pause if I'm the government about uh, how the rest of this is going to go. So I love you brought that up because it's so funny how everyone just assumes that, that in terms of who's doing the deciding that somehow the fix is in with the, the military commission panel system. I, it reminds me always of this uh, conference that I think Jeff Korn hosted at South Texas, you know, again, like so long ago, this is like 15, 16 years ago, probably. And one of the attorneys who had represented, I think, one of Padilla's co-defendants in the Jose Padilla trial in South Florida, I think maybe the attorney for Hassoun in that case, uh, was there talking about, we, we were mostly talking about military commissions, and that attorney was talking about the experience being in federal civilian court and that attorney said like, oh, I would, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the person said, I would much rather have yeah. a panel yep. of military officers than, yeah. uh, than the median juror who is more likely to be bamboozled by uh, images so that, of the towers, I, that sort of thing. I, I, think, I think that was Chatham House rule, so I'm not going to say who it was, but I know exactly who you're talking about. It wasn't Hassoun's lawyer, but I remember the line vividly. Yeah. Right, which was the line. The line was, "If my client is going to be convicted, I would rather be sentenced by a military commission panel than by a civilian jury." Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it does. It makes a lot of sense, and there's the evidence there. Well, interesting. Um, and you know, notwithstanding my carping about, you know, how how dare they impugn the principle of military detention? Um, I get it. I think, as you say, they're not lawyers. What they're what they're trying to express is this sort of sentiment that there they are in a criminal proceeding context. And if you are viewing the entire case through that lens and it's been, you know, a decade and a half, it looks one way. If you're, if you were instead simply saying, all right, uh, this guy's been captured here, the allegations, we think we can prove it. Um, and we think the armed conflict is going on. Do you think we can detain him or do we have to release him in the absence of, you know, do we have to prosecute each person we detain on your theory? And they probably would, would say something perhaps a little more, uh, complicated in response to that, but who knows? Well, let's, uh, let's pivot, uh, maybe do a quick rundown. Do we want to say anything about the cert denial in the ACLU's attempt to, uh, I do actually, yeah, okay. if you don't yeah, mind take that, please. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the Supreme court and national security law, we actually probably went out of order a bit, but say la vie. Um, so there was this fascinating cert petition, um, 
that the ACLU had filed, actually that Ted Olson had filed, right, on behalf of the ACLU. Um, and the petition was challenging a pair of rulings by the FISA court that there's no First Amendment right of public access to any opinions by the FISA court, even those, Bobby, involving significant questions of law, um, right? And that, you know, because there's no First Amendment right of access, there's therefore no interest that would allow someone like the ACLU to sue for the release of such opinions. Um, and indeed, the FISA court of the FISA court of review on appeal actually went a step further and said the ACLU didn't have standing, um, right, to even to even pursue this issue. Um, and so the petition raised two separate questions. The first, it raised the merits question of whether the First Amendment, you know, ever requires the disclosure of FISA court opinions, but it also raised the question of like, you know, and shouldn't there be some mechanism by which someone can make this argument in a court? Um, and what I was struck by is it, it, yes, the court denied cert, but it provoked a two justice dissent um, from the denial of cert. And Bobby, it was a strange pair. It was Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor. Um, and I, as someone who has looked very carefully at voting alignments in Supreme Court orders, um, I can say that this is the first time that you've seen a sort of a strange bedfellows dissent from a cert denial um, in a couple of years, um, since the last time that like Ginsburg and Thomas agreed to revisit the Ferris Doctrine. Yeah, it um, is. It struck me. And of course, I, I think that for a lot of people who want to sort of make the justices more two-dimensional than they often are, people are like, well, how, you know, what is Gorsuch doing in that, in that pair? But uh, there are any number of ways in which, so first of all, let's say this about conservatism and national security institutions. I think over the past five years, we've seen some, some uh, shifting of what one can assume about general political ideology and what their general attitudes therefore might be towards government surveillance-focused institutions. That, that's one thing. And then secondly, um, you know, Gorsuch, like, like many uh, another conservative justice, has a lot of interest in certain rights issues, in, including some uh, questions of government surveillance powers. And so it is definitely a, a striking pairing, yet it kind of makes sense, perhaps, once you dig beneath the surface a bit. Does that sound right to Maybe. you? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I want to withhold judgment on the Gorsuch piece until we see what happens in Fizago, which I think we're going to talk about next. But um, I, I do though want to read a couple uh, um, a couple paragraphs, um, right? So he says, this is sort of the last two paragraphs. It's a short opinion. It's two and a half pages. But he says, um, now the ACLU has filed a petition for certiorari asking this court to review these decisions. Um, in response, the government does not merely argue that the lower court ruling should be left undisturbed. The government also presses the extraordinary claim that this court is powerless to review the lower court's decisions, even if they're mistaken. On the government's view, literally no court in this country has the power to decide whether citizens possess a First Amendment right of access to the work of our national security courts. Now, there's a line, right? Like 15 years ago, people were like, national security courts, they're real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that that used to be the the term, wasn't it? It reminds me of uh, I don't know if Glenn Solmazi, uh, Glenn, apologies if I just mispronounce your last name, Solmazi. Um, he had a whole book Solmazi. on this, right? And we used to talk about like what else? What else can we have? What else can we get the FISA court to do? Um, yeah, so part of that is, I guess. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to read the rest of the quote. Yeah, please. So it says, today the court declines to take up this matter. I would hear it. This case presents questions about the right of public access to Article III judicial proceedings of grave national importance. Maybe even more fundamentally, this case involves a governmental challenge to the power of this court to review the work of Article III judges in a subordinate court. If these matters are not worthy of our time, what is? Respectfully, I dissent. And I should say, Bobby, full disclosure, I was one of the amici on a brief on the jurisdictional question on why the Supreme Court actually did have the power to review the FISA Court of Review's decision, which is one of the government's arguments that Gorsuch was responding to. So, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how big a deal this dissent is. I just think it's interesting. I mean, I think the the larger problem of sort of access to FISA court opinions is to me something that Congress probably can fix if it ever really wanted to. Um, it just, you know, the USA Freedom Act create, you know, it increases the sort of preference for publication of FISA court opinions, but it's still not a mandate. Um, well, so let's talk about that, because I think that's a really critical piece. Not everybody is even familiar with the idea that Congress has, in fact, legislated on this issue. Um, and so in the USA Freedom Act, there there was an, a big effort 
to try to create a more compulsory mechanism. The, the FISA courts always had the discretion to go public with some of its opinions. And in more recent years, it had begun doing that perhaps more often. After an initial period, a large part of our early career, Steve, when you just, <laughs> you just, you just had no idea, right? It was always kept in private. In more recent years, AKA after Snowden. Right, well, yes, indeed that. that. That certainly, first of all, that put a lot of them out there. But even before Snowden, some of these had begun to become uh, released at discretion. And the idea was, look, it, at a minimum, those that entail novel interpretations of the Fourth Amendment or the statutory foundations of what they're dealing with at the court. In other words, not the fact-oriented, evidence-oriented opinions, but the redacted opinions getting at what the legal interpretation are, sort of the, the great lesson of the Snowden revelation and the blow-up over the court's non-public interpretation of Section 215 for metadata collection purposes, the great lesson was, hey, you, it's all well and good if you guys have persuaded yourself that this is the right way to interpret the statute and to interpret the Fourth Amendment in light of the statute or vice versa. Uh, but you may be doing something so novel and creative that it may not stand the light of day, right? And so the USA Freedom Act, I think, responds to that um, by calling for disclosure where those types of interpretations are occurring. Um, and, and to some extent, this does happen. I mean, opinions now are much more often than the past released. What would you say, Steve, is like the biggest delta between what's happening now and what the ACLU and others would like to have more firmly written into the rules, if not derived from the Constitution, which um, maybe seems not to be in the cards for them? I mean, I think I think the problem is is that the 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 rules and the norms as they exist right now give all of the relevant decision making power to the FISA court to decide for itself whether the opinion meets the criteria, whether it resolves a significant question of law, et cetera. And Bobby, this is the same fight we had in 2015 when we were fighting over it, when you know both you and I personally and lots of people more generally were debating the USA Freedom Act, which is part of the problem. To me, part of the institutional problem that Snowden disclosed um, and revealed is that we couldn't always trust the FISA court to correctly police that boundary. And so I think the biggest delta between what the FISA court does and what the ACLU would like is having an opportunity to say, actually, FISA court, you're wrong. This opinion meets the standard and therefore should be public. Um, or well, how do you, how would you, how would you operationalize that? Uh, who's watching the watchers here? How do you, how do you not have the court always in the position of being the, the one to say, okay, this one meets the statutory standard. Well, the other I one mean, doesn't. So how do you are, overcome we that? Process, we have a process for court appointed amici, um, who have the relevant security clearances. You could create a procedure whereby the amici could request publication and could be allowed to appeal if the request is denied. Um, I mean, like the, there are ways really to do that. So they they don't automatically, under current law, see every opinion, right? They're not a body of, of sort of censors or re reverse or uncensors in that respect. No, although in theory, although in theory, if they're participating in a case, it's because the case involves the kind of significant question of law that is supposed to trigger publication. Yeah, that's good. Um, I like that. So, so you could. I'm looking for objective and administrable rules here. So, if you've already decided. Now, you could say like, well, now the court's going to decide not to involve the, the amicus. Well, maybe so, but let's solve one problem at a time here. If you've decided it's a case that presents a novel legal interpretive issue, which is the trigger for bringing the amicus in, then that also puts you in a position where it's not crazy to say, also, when you render your ruling, the amicus can make the case that, yep, that one's got to be in properly redacted form. That part's got to be disclosed. Interesting. Um, anyway, I just, but I also, I mean, but the, the, I, just, I don't want to lose the thread on the other point that Gorsuch is making. I mean, the notion that like there's going to be a universe, that, the, the notion that like this is an issue that like no one's going to be able to raise in any court is kind of a scary one and dovetails a little bit, right, with this non-national security thing we're fighting about right now, about whether a state can insulate a, a, a statute that makes it hard to vindicate a constitutional right from all judicial review. What so, happens under, to be in the water? What happens under the current rules? If you have a case where an amicus has been appointed and the opinion is rendered and the amicus can see that no public disclosure of, a, of an unclassified version of the opinion has, has been released and the amicus raises the issue, 
can they? I don't, think I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any mechanism for the amicus to appeal as a party. And and this goes back to, like, I mean, gosh, this is now we're getting the wayback machine. This goes this this goes back to reason number four hundred and sixteen. Why those of us who pushed really aggressively for a special advocate in the FISA court thought it needed to be a party and not just an amicus. Well, it sounds like you're convincing me that the problem is the amicus just doesn't have the authority, not that they don't have the will. Um, and I one think, way to fix that is to make the amicus a party. Well, yeah, but another one is simply to confer by statute, confer the jurisdiction on the amicus or confer the power on the amicus to to present this issue first to the court itself. And if the court rebuffs it to the Fisk Court of Review and if the Fisk Court of Review rebuffs it to take it to the Supreme Court, that seems like a, a nice tailored fix to the problem, which I agree that that seems worth well, fixing. Yeah. Although I'm not sure Congress can give a non-party appellate standing by statute. I mean, that's the tricky part. Like this goes back to why you'd solve, you actually solve some constitutional problems as opposed to creating them. If you made them. Yeah. I see what you're saying there that I guess it gets to the question of, can you give, can you treat this as something other than an appeal somehow and, and still involve the court? Probably not. So exactly. Interesting. All right. Well, yeah. Turn the amicus into a quasi special advocate, I guess. But I will say, I mean, but but before we get into, but before we get into the sort of the look at Justice Gorsuch, the great civil libertarian, I do think we have to talk about Fizaga. Um, well, we certainly should talk about uh, Fizaga. Did I say Fugaza earlier? I always want to make it Fugazi, and that's Fugazi. not what it is. that's not what I'm talking about. Fizaga. Okay. Um, I listened to a big chunk of the oral argument, but only got part of it. I did. I did hear. Uh, uh, Lord Donahue's got to be feeling good today. Lots of, I think it was Justice Breyer that kept shouting her out. Uh, I could be wrong about which justice it was, but good job, Laura. They uh, they were loving your brief. Um, what did you? What are your your insights you took well, away? We, from the, sorry, I, go ahead. I, why, why do we start by reminding people what the case is about? Right. I mean, so um, so it stems from an FBI operation in 2006 and 2007, in which FBI agents sent a paid informant into some of the largest mosques in Orange County. Um, and instructed him to pose as a convert to Islam. Um, and then the informant uh, gathered names, telephone numbers, email addresses, all kinds of, you know, <laughs> personal information on people for no other reason than because they were Muslim Americans um, attending religious uh, worship services. Um, he recorded conversations, all this other stuff. You know, it was really, really just, ugh. Anyway, so um, one of the targets or one of the folks who was recorded um, is the sheikh um, of the of the mosque, uh, Sheikh Yasir Fazaga. And he, he and a couple other people sued um, the FBI saying that like this behavior was unconstitutional. It was a violation of their religious liberty. It was a violation of various statutes. It was a violation of the First Amendment. It was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. It was a violation. And that some of what the FBI was doing, um, right, because it involved... Anyway, so so the government's response is that, um, at least on some of the claims, right, they didn't have to sort of turn over the information that the plaintiffs were seeking because it was all protected by the state secrets privilege. And the whole fight in the case, Bobby, turned on whether, or at least in theory turns on, whether the state secrets privilege bars the, the you know, bars the litigation, uh, bars the discovery, bars this evidence. Um, the plaintiff's response is that there's a mechanism, right, through which any sort of, inf any claim like this can be resolved. And it's the mechanism provided by FISA itself in 50 USC section 1806F. Let me read um, that real quick for our friends so they get that context. Uh, in relevant part, 1806F says, is titled, In-Camera Ex Parte Review by District Court. Whenever a court or other authorities notified un under this, stat this section uh, or a proper motion is made uh, by an aggrieved person uh, to uh, a motion to discover or obtain applications or orders or other materials relating to electronic surveillance or to... Uh, discover, obtain, or suppress evidence or information obtained or derived from electronic surveillance. Uh, the district court, where the motion's made, uh, da, 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 shall, notwithstanding any other law, if the attorney general files an affidavit under oath that disclosure or an adversary hearing would harm national security, the district court will review in camera and ex parte the application or order relating to surveillance, the presumably the FISA surveillance, as is necessary to determine whether the surveillance of the aggrieved person was in fact lawfully authorized and conducted. And uh, then it goes on to say the court can 
disclose under appropriate limits uh, the materials to the aggrieved person, but doesn't have to. So can you can you kind of take that that very word salady thing and explain? So how does what's the argument about how this interacts with the state secrets privilege? So there are two layers. Uh, okay, so layer number one is does this apply in the first place? Um, everyone agrees that 1806F applies to a motion to suppress evidence obtained under FISA that the government seeks to introduce in a criminal prosecution. One of the big questions before the Supreme Court is whether 1806F also applies, Bobby, to civil litigation. Um, and it's sort of a general you know, balancing procedure for judicial consideration of the introduction of evidence arising from foreign intelligence surveillance. Right. Um, and is and the then, pl- are the plaintiffs here arguing a FISA statutory violation? So, yes, um, in addition to um, constitutional violations, right? But like, the, but, the, but the argument is that 1806F is meant, like, if the underlying claim, where, whether the claim comes from FISA or from the Constitution, arises from surveillance conducted pursuant to FISA, which some of this was, right, then the argument is 1806F provides the procedure courts should use to balance the plaintiff's interest, you know, the government's interest and the, and the, and the, tar- and the surveillance interest. Yeah. Um, then, right, if F applies, the question is, does F override the state secrets privilege? Like, by, by enacting this specific procedure, did Congress mean to displace the otherwise, ev- the otherwise extant state secrets privilege that would otherwise bear on the matter? Um, and, I, you know, my takeaway from this morning's argument is that the there's enough of a division among the justices about whether they even want to reach that question um, that they're going to be inclined to hold that 1806F just doesn't apply um, based on some fancy statutory footwork about the other provisions of 1806, other, other words in 1806, yep. and that by saying it doesn't apply, the case would go back to the lower courts for just a straight state secrets uh, uh, assertion by the government versus a, you know, FISA procedure versus state secrets. So that's exactly the impression I had from the limited part I heard. Um, I did listen to about an hour's worth of it, and it felt like it kept coming back to this possibility that the statutory interpretation question could obviate the need to touch something that the chief, I think it was the chief, or might have been Brett Kavanaugh, maybe both kept saying like, oh, do, this is like hugely weighty. Do we really, if we don't need to talk about this, maybe we shouldn't be talking. I about think that. that was more Kavanaugh than the chief. I mean, I mean, so, so Justice Kavanaugh, I will say unsurprisingly, um, uh, as much as anybody else up there, I will say even more so than the counsel for the government, uh, Deputy Solicitor General Ed Needler was very aggressively pushing the, you know, isn't the state secrets privilege doing constitutional work? Doesn't it raise serious constitutional issues? If, you know, Congress were seeking to interfere with it, um, shouldn't we avoid those questions? Exactly. Like, that Candid- was a very big Candid- of interpretation aid right there. Yeah. So but, that's what I, I think's I, probably going to happen too. I, I just, I mean, and, and so folks will portray it as like a compromise, right? Or as like, a, you know, the justice avoiding a big question. It's worth stressing. I mean, first of all, this is a pretty shady case um, on the government's part. But second of all, um, I... Like the notion that when Congress sat down to hash out FISA and wrote 1806F the way it did, all it was thinking about was motions to suppress strikes me as a little bit fanciful. I mean, yes, there is language in the statute that is not perfectly explicit that 1806F applies beyond motions to suppress, but like it's literally a different subsection from the subsection titled motion to suppress. Right. It's written in general terms. It refers to circumstances that would not be limited to motions to suppress. And so the notion that the, that the way to avoid the constitutional question is to read the statute to not apply to a scenario seems pretty clear. Congress meant to refer to apply to. I, well, it's, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so e, it's it's subsection F. Subsection E is motion to suppress. Subsection G is suppression of evidence. It's sort of sandwiched between those two. That doesn't. Can, that doesn't cinch the case, but or clinch the case. But, no, no, but, but, no, but wait, but if we're going to parse, I mean, so the first sentence of F, whenever a court or other authority is notified pursuant to C or D, or whenever a motion is made pursuant to E, right? So there are three triggers, right? The motion, the E motion, so the, the, the statute says there are three circumstances where this procedure is triggered, right? The third one is a motion to suppress, 
And the first two are notifications by either the federal government, that's C, or a state or local government, that's D, that the government entity intends to enter into evidence information derived from electronic surveillance in Bobby, quote, any trial, hearing, or other proceeding in or before any court. I mean, how do you yeah, read but, that as... But wait, but is... So is the government in this case invoking the state secrets privilege as to their own evidence that they would intend to introduce? So the government is saying that the that the that the case cannot go forward because the inf- because to, uh, to to bring the case forward would require the introduction of information that's protected by the state secrets privilege. Yeah, so I I mean I think what we're met with here it all boils down to 1806 uh, C notification by the United States because that's the relevant uh, party. Now, if you want to be strict about the the language, the language is whenever the government intends to enter into evidence or otherwise use or disclose, they don't intend to do that. They're arguing. Yes, they do. Feel. They intend to use it. They intend to use it as a basis for invoking the state secrets privilege. No, I, what I'm saying is they're trying to they're trying to be hyper textualist about this, right? And saying like, no, our whole point is we don't intend to use it, but that's because we're caught in a bind. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm getting at is, isn't that what they're claiming? Yes, that it's yes, not quite yes, a fit yes, here because they don't yes. want it to end? Yes, we're not We're not using it. The whole point is we're not using it. And I guess my response is, but wait a second. Like, if, you're, if your argument is that this case should be dismissed because of the state secrets privilege, well, you are using it. You're just using it not the way that the statute contemplates. Like, in other words, Bobby, it's... Yeah. If you read the statute the way that the plaintiffs do, right, your concern goes away because in a universe in which FISA is displacing the state secrets privilege, right, there's only one use. The use is when the go- the use is the balancing. The use is the government says we, you know, this evidence shouldn't come in. We have to follow the 1806 procedure. So, I completely agree. This is this is my take Oops. on this. Let me unpack this. Um, starting from the top, this is why I'm persuaded by this. So F is the process, et cetera, that it doesn't mean that the, the plaintiffs win, obviously, but it, but it creates a process that if applicable, obviously is meant to apply in a situation that otherwise would have by default been subject to the state secrets privilege. So once you get to the idea that F is triggered properly, I think you're off to the races and, and yes, you could argue that, well, now you got a problem with possibly Congress being interpreted to trying to override Article 2. But even though I actually think there is something to the argument that Article 2 is part of the wellspring of of, uh, of the state secrets privilege, nonetheless, that doesn't mean that Congress's hands are tied. It's just, it's just part of where it's coming from. That's all. So I, I think it the, the plaintiffs are in great shape if they can say it's properly triggered. So you point out that there's three separate triggers. One of them is 1806C, and the precise language to give full meaning to the text, to be proper textualist with this, there's the distinction drawn here between when the government intends to enter such material into evidence, which is not satisfied here. Yes, I agree. Or, or otherwise use in a proceeding before a court against an aggrieved person. Well, now here's, here's a problem. Otherwise use any information obtained or derived from an electronic surveillance of that person. Are they trying to do that? So the, the, I don't, the I don't think so- they're necessarily trying to do that. I think so. Maybe I'm I'm talking myself out of it again. Does the thing that they're going to use, albeit as a way to uh, prevail on a sort of uh, tenant veto style uh, motion, does the thing they're trying to put in that they feel like they can't put in? It's not the fruits of the surveillance, is it? Isn't it it's collateral part of it. stuff about the other intelligence that made them suspect this guy to begin with? I think it's the I think it's the derived from. So I, th- this is deeper in the briefs than I'm remembering right now. But I think that I I don't think Bobby that the government is disputing that the relevant information at issue falls is obtained or derived from, right? I think the whole. Oh wow! Of- okay, if they're conceding that, then I think they lose. They, so again, yeah. the question is, what does otherwise use mean? I mean, like, yeah. I actually think this whole case boils on the first issue whether this all whether HSF applies. It all boils down to what does otherwise use mean? Well, and I, is it otherwise using right the information derived from if you are invoking the state secrets privilege to avoid having to disclose that information? I, I think yes. If you if you're trying to achieve the dismissal of the suit 
based on showing that information in support of a state secrets dismissal motion, you're otherwise using it against an aggrieved person. What's fascinating to me is that, that the government may have conceded that what they are trying to invoke as the protected information set is actually the fruits of FISA authorized surveillance. So, no, no, no. So, so wait, hold on a second. I don't think they've conceded that. I think they have not disputed. I, I think they have not. So again, there are like 426 briefs in this case, but yeah. I just think I think they have not disputed whether the information was obtained under or derived from. Like I think I, yeah. I just think okay. they haven't so, fighted on that ground. So that's super interesting because for me, based on my limited knowledge of the case, that's the linchpin right there. Because I can imagine a world in which. So what we're imagining is the this recurring scenario in which the government says, hey, we can't defend fully without being put to the impossible choice of preserving secrecy of the classified information or else using it to win the case. So it's that kind of scenario. So you got some classified information. If the stuff, the sort of the, the magic beans, let's call them that, if the, if the magic beans are themselves derived or obtained from that FISA authorized surveillance, then this is then this applies here. And I think that's absolutely a use in a trial hearing or other proceeding against an aggrieved person. So I think they should lose in that case. If instead, what they'd like to, all things being equal, what they'd like to be able to come forward with as the magic beans is from other intelligence sources. Maybe it's humans or other signals. No, 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 I agree. So I would agree with you. If the, if the information at issue could not fairly be said, or at least was disputed as not being, right? obtained or derived from an electronic surveillance pursuant to the authority of the subchapter. No, no, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. Okay, but here's the problem. The problem is that the court's not. And the court (laughs) is going to interpret use narrowly to avoid a constitutional question that I frankly think is squarely presented. So this seems problematic because what what good is the use prong if it's not, what work is it doing other than the scenario involving the government entering the the magic beans into evidence. So the government has identified a few other circumstances, right? And uh, I mean, their brief does give a couple of examples where otherwise user disclose is doing work that's distinct from entered into evidence. Um, But I just, you know, it just seems to me that like, a natural reading of the like the so and, and Bobby, if we did this for an hour, I could show you other parts of the statute where the government says ambiguities are introduced. I mean, like the it is not a straight shot yeah. to our results. Yeah, I got you. But, I got you. But I'm right, persuaded by but, what I've heard so far. Well, and it just and it just strikes me that like I understand why it's attractive to the court to sort of take the constitutional avoidance off ramp. I'm sure that's where we're heading. I just think that like it's both unpersuasive here and problematic because Congress is never going to come back and like force this con like, you know, FISA was such a unique process. It was such a remarkable moment. The notion that, that any Congress, let alone a current or, or contemporary Congress is going to actually come back and override that statutory interpretation is just so I don't know. Implausible I, mean, yeah. to me. I mean, I think it's unlikely, but I think it's a lot more plausible these days in the fractured politics of surveillance. Now you mentioned that you I mean, felt, you felt like from what you heard, you felt like from what you heard of Gorsuch during the argument that he's maybe not going to be uh, sympathetic. What what was he? What line was he taking that you could detect? Just, I mean, I, I so th- there were there were justices who expressed sympathy on the use argument, and there were justices who didn't. And I just, you know, I I thought that Justice Barrett at various points expressed some sympathy on the use argument. I think even Chief Justice Roberts actually had a couple of tough questions for the government. But I just, I, I actually don't even think this is going to be six to three. I think I think this is going to be like, you know seven to two or maybe even eight to one on constitutional avoidance with concurrences that with with dueling concurrences where maybe Kavanaugh sticks out a very broad position on the unresolved constitutional question and maybe like Kagan and Breyer push back. It's so interesting because it's a little bit reminds me of Gregory V. Ashcroft, where the constitutional avoidance interpretation assumes things. Now, in that case, it was assuming some very contested C. Garcia uh, things about what the constitutional federalism problem was. Um, wouldn't it be the case here that if if a bunch of the justices all go for constitutional avoidance, that they are largely assuming the Article Two foundations of the privilege? Um, I, I think they would at least have to say that that the notion that the privilege is doing at least some constitutional. They, they would at least have to say that there that there's a substantial question as to whether the privilege is doing constitutional work. 
Yeah. Um, I don't. I, think I don't think they would. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, that'll be an interesting thing to write to sort of prevent. You know, if, if you really are trying to build a consensus among the justices on constitutional avoidance here, I think you'd have to write it pretty milli, in a pretty mealy mouth way to keep everyone on side. You no, know, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was delighted to see that my 2006 state secrets sort of what are the historical <laughs> origins article. Uh, got got some uh, reliance interest. You'd hate to write something like that, and then eventually the case comes to the court and no one cites it. So whoever whoever plucked me from obscurity there in their briefs, thank you, appreciate it. Well, and my and my the first amicus brief I ever wrote as a lawyer um, about why the why why you know, F displaces the state secrets privilege uh, may not be long for this world. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I guess we should go to lightning round. I know you need to go in a minute. Um, what else have we got? We should, we should take note of, uh, uh, do you want to give us a Bagani update or did you already kind of cover that enough earlier? Yeah. I mean, you know, government brief, government brief in opposition comes back tomorrow. Our reply is due November 23rd. We probably won't get a decision on whether to grant cert or not until at least early January. Well, I'll note two, uh, cybersecurity things in, in the spirit of national security division roundups. So first of all, just today, there was a splashy announcement from DOJ about some pretty cool news. Um, It turns out that uh, we hopefully will soon have our hands on, or at least eventually through extradition, we'll have our hands on uh, Yaroslav Vasinsky, who's a Ukrainian national associated with the Revil ransomware uh, operation that that very impactfully exploited uh, the Kaseya um, software supply chain ecosystem, if you will, distributing a lot of ransomware out to really high impact. This was a big deal, summer of 2021 episode. Uh, This guy uh, was, I believe, in Poland when he was arrested. So, you know, once again, talking about how you you can't assume that even... even, uh, the smartest folks won't go somewhere where they can be nabbed. So, so anyways, this is all in connection with the Kaseya exploit that happened. That was a big deal. And also apparently they did manage, FBI has managed to uh, seize uh, $6 million in ransomware payments from that episode. That's a really big deal too. This follows an earlier episode in which it looks like we did some fancy footwork to, to grab the keys to someone's crypto wallet I don't yet know any details on whether that's, again, what happened here, but that's pretty awesome that we were able to do this. That's real progress. Glad to see it. Uh, On a different uh, cybersecurity front, you've got this uh, really remarkable jury conviction I mentioned earlier. So uh, a a deputy division director of of the provincial office in uh, Jiangsu, uh, of the Ministry of State Security in China, which is basically like um, this is the the out the out uh, outpost of the Ministry of State Security based in Nanjing that conducts some of the more or is it alleged to have conducted some of the more high profile uh, commercial espionage that China's carried out. Um, we've known for a couple of years that there were charges relating to this. Uh, this guy was uh, arrested in his case when he went to Belgium. He went to Belgium thinking he was going to take a handoff of some stolen information from a GE employee that he'd been cultivating. So this is like a case officer handling what he thinks is an asset, but the GE employee had in fact uh, blown the whistle to the FBI and the Belgians arrested the Chinese case officer when he tried to consummate the transaction. And then he got extradited to Cincinnati and he just got convicted by a jury. Now it's not surprising. The, the charge he was convicted on, uh, I assume, was 18 U.S. Code 1831. That's economic espionage. It's a broad statute. It's a felony to knowingly steal trade secrets with knowledge or intent to benefit any foreign government. And there's conspiracy to attach to that as well. And that, that applies here. There's no question about that. What's interesting is the policy decision to actually uh, engage in an operation to lay hands on a Chinese uh, intelligence case officer for doing this. And that that's one piece of it. And just from a reciprocity perspective, that's interesting. It's, it's potentially provocative. Uh, it's something for all of, all of America's own, uh, intelligence officers to be wary of insofar as China may have an increasing footprint around the world of places where it might be able to 
play that same game. Um, if we are, if our people are careful enough not to go to all such places, not to be in China, at least not be detected in China, then you have to fear uh, something that China has done in the case of the Canadians that they effectively uh, kidnapped and held for ransom under bogus charges uh, as a counterweight to the potential extradition of the Huawei CFO a while back. Will we see that begin to happen more with actual American citizens? Um, they did it to Canadians. Will they do it to us too? We'll see. Then there's the larger kind of policy question about what sort of red line we are, we are enforcing when it comes to economic espionage. And I say that it's kind of interesting here because with uh, with GE engine technology, this is about a special composite fan blade, as I understand it, that uh, maybe is only relevant in the commercial space. But I can imagine there's an argument that this thing had more traditional national security military uh, IP relevance, where you could look at this more as an attack on a defense industrial base entity for relatively traditional military application purposes, as opposed to just... Uh, commercial competition purposes. The United States definitely draws a red line between those spaces. Um, I wonder about whether this case, if you knew more details than I know, whether it clearly falls on the, just the plain vanilla commercial espionage side of that red line, in which case prosecuting makes sense, or does it maybe get into a gray area where it seems a little bit more like prosecuting a foreign intelligence officer for engaging in at least what arguably is more conventional forms of espionage, albeit involving IP held by a private company. I don't know enough to know about the, the relevance of the, the technology at issue, but it's interesting. All right, Steve, sure is. anything else we should say before we get uh, briefly frivolous or should we shut it down because you need to run? Um, I, you know, I, I, we, we have these things called kids and they expect us to you know show up once in a while. Are they using Life360 on you to track your movements? Not yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Um, also, we, Karen and I have our 10th anniversary coming up on Friday. Hey, that's awesome. 10 years. Mazel yeah. tov. That's great. We'll, uh, see if, we'll, see if, we'll see if we make it. I hope you have an awesome uh, dinner plan, some awesome adventure plan. You guys travel pretty well. I wonder if you're traveling. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Karen. I'm trying to help you out here. Seriously. Um, all right, should we do some frivolity? Yeah. Um, okay. So sports ball. Sports ball time. Do you, what are we're you not most talking interested about baseball. in? We're, we're, we're just not talking about baseball. And I gather we're not talking about college football because you know. Oh man, reasons. it's bad. It's been a it's been a rough month for UT football, Texas football. We had I don't know if you saw that. Uh, formerly starting wide receiver Josh Moore is now uh, left the team. Is in the transfer portal. Yeah, in the transfer portal. Yeah, that obviously was a very broken relationship. Um, there've been lots of issues there. That, that whole thing is just, you know, you, you hate to see anything like that happening one way or the other. I don't know the ins and outs of it. Texas will be fine. We're going to be fine. We don't need to go into panic mode, but we are sure looking rough right now. Uh, I, I'm not sure we're going to make a bowl this year. Uh, we're going to, we're going to, we will take out our frustrations on Kansas coming up. And then I actually think we might, uh, build from that and swing the momentum back and, and win out the rest of the season. So I pred <laughs> I'm predicting right now uh, UT in the Alamo Bowl. And if you come to town for that, uh, you know, we'll see you there. Uh, what you about are, your Giants? You, Tell are, you are so optimistic. I My am. Giants, the, the Giants look like a real, have, you know, for the last two weeks, the Giants have looked like a real football team. It's very strange. Lots of lots of COVID craziness going on there. I guess there wasn't there some kind of like false positive where they thought they're going to be out all these players and then it then it wasn't. Maybe it's just maybe it's just one week. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just so excited that they beat whoever. Um, who the heck did they beat? They beat somebody actually halfway decent. Oh, the Raiders, right? Although the Raiders have their own. Yeah, they're reeling. That's <laughs> that that's an awful tragedy. Um, the Cowboys were looking so awesome, and they just got their head handed to them by Teddy Bridgewater and the Denver Broncos. Oh, Cowboys, I feel so bad. I know you do. I know you do. I just, I, I, I sh pour one out for the Cowboys. All right, Bobby, can you name the only uh, two? What are the two divisions in the NFL where every team is over five hundred? Uh, NFC West has got to be one of them, right? Nope. No. The Seahawks and the 49ers are both three and five. Oh man, that's so wrong. Um, well, let's see. It uh, could it possibly be the AFC Central? 
what what division is the AFC Central? That, that is not a division. Oh, I'm still old school. I'm yeah. I'm talking about the Steel. What do we call the Steelers, Ravens, Browns, and Bengals? The north, north, north right? That's such a sign of my age. Such a sign of my age. That's still the Central. To me. Next, we're going to be talking about the Prince of Wales Conference. I want to talk about the <laughs> USFL. <laughs> oh, by the way, are you talking about old NHL divisions? Uh, yeah. Did they not use the Patrick tonight? Division? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, wait, wait, the Prince of Wales Conference. What was the other one? Um, I Prince don't of Wales recall. Conference. I was never and much of a hockey West- guy. What was the Western? Uh, what was the Western Conference called? Gosh, I feel so old that I don't remember this. I do um, still feel like the Astros are an, a National League team and the Brewers are American League. By the way. Um, um, hey, we should say it. Like, congratulations to the Braves fans. That was a beatdown. I thought no, the Astros could make a stop. series out of it, but we're not wow. talking about. We're not talking about baseball. We're not at no. all. No. Okay. All right. All right. Well, still, congrats to the Braves fans. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, um, I, need, I need to ask this: Should the Astros re-sign Carlos Correa, or should they let him go be a Yankee? On a scale of one to a billion, the extent to which I don't care. <laughs> oh, you do care though, because if he okay, so first of all, he could go to the Mets if they still got the pocketbook open. They're not gonna go. No. Okay, but then they might go to a division rival, and then you'll care. Correa's like the in won the World Series. What's that? Again, this is why I don't want to talk about baseball. All right, all right, all right, all right. No, no Mets talk. Um, can, we, can, we, can we talk about the overachieving New York Knicks though? Yeah, I'm super impressed. Um, I'm not sure how they're pulling this off. Um, I'm so, as you might imagine, utterly crushed by watching anything NBA because the Spurs are so, they're just so uh, the opposite of what they used to be. And it's hard to, it's hard to see where the, the big change is coming for them. Yeah, they have some talented young guys, but where's the star power? There isn't any. Yeah, the Knicks are here in December. Doing what? You mean like they're, they're going to be, yeah. The Knicks, Can you the get Knicks, us some- the Knicks- can you and or some beloved <laughs> listener get us some sweet good tickets? I'll be all over that. I will never get tickets as good as the tickets we got. That was that so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that was a great so time. I, I don't know if we have we told the story of the podcast. But I'm the sure we did. That, yeah, early days that we, court, that we sat literally next to the Spurs bench at the I mean, Spurs game. I was like two seats away from Pop. I, I that was one of my favorite things. You made that happen. Thank you so much. That was a yeah. that was a bucket list moment for me. Um, um, anyway, yeah, the Knicks are here um, Tuesday, December seventh. Well, I did. So, I did greatly enjoy the last time I saw the Knicks in San Antonio, which was en route to one of the Spurs titles, and it was great fun uh, uh, watching this moment where the security teams for Governor Bush and Spike Lee, who were sitting right by each other, their security uh, teams brushed up against each other and had, or at least uh, I don't know if they were formal security teams, but they were guys representing the two principals and they had a little bit of a standoff during the war-ups and it was great fun watching that all righty then all right well anyway um what's your over under for when we record our next episode three weeks three weeks so the 20 well I, the 29th that will be in new york for my next argument oh but, we got the uh, thanksgiving wrinkle there thanksgiving we do it, we do it. It, it is a wrinkle i bet we do it right, right before we head off for thanksgiving all right. Well, I'll take the over. Uh, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, the, 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 as Bobby said, the quarterly NSL podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I guess Happy New Year, everybody. Stay safe out there. <laughs> Adios.